Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, and I am called the Intern Whisperer. Um, the reason why is because I share these tips of the week with people, and it all seems to help people remember we're all interns in life. So today's tip of the week is, what would you say is the most important cognitive skill? In my opinion, and in my research, it is communication. The reason why is because successful communication helps us better understand people and situations. It helps us to overcome any type of negative perceptions about diversity and aggressions that we have. It helps us to build trust and respect and creates conditions for sharing creative ideas and solving problems. Remember that all people, regardless of age, regardless of where they are in life, we all want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be accepted and respected. So welcome to The Interim Whisper. Our show is all about the future of work and innovation. So today's guest, I'm so excited. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with Larry Roberts. He is with PodFest. He is the owner of Red Hat um, Media, and he is somebody that is just educating people all about the uh, chat GPT and how we're using it in the podcast industry. But he He's somebody I've known for a while and I've really admired and I'm very excited. I've had Chris on my show. I'm going to have Andrew on my show. I've had, you know, other people from PodFest on my show, but I've been trying to get you for a little while. You just didn't know it. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to be here. You know, we, we, we've taken a couple of stabs at it and gratefully we're here today to have this amazing conversation. It is so exciting. So Anyway, he, like I said to our listeners, he's the founder of Red Hat Media and number one big win. He's going to talk about these things. He is a well-known speaker at PodFest and other events, and he's also an Amazon number one best-selling author and top-rated Udemy, Udemy course creator. So we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the creator space, I think we need to create as much as we possibly can. You know, I mean, we're podcasters. Uh, we're content creators. We create video. Uh, some of us author books. Some of us author courses. Some of us uh, like to get up and speak. Uh, there's a variety of different platforms that we can leverage to get our message out. And to date, I think I've tried to leverage just about all of them. <laughs> oh, I know you have. Yeah, you absolutely have. Have you done a, a TED Talk at all or a TEDx Talk? Interesting that you ask. Uh, I just started applying for my TEDx. My goal is to, to do the TEDx sometime this year. Very nice. Well, yep. I used to be a TEDx organizer. I can give you some in inside tips if you want. Yeah, that'd be because cool. We we're always picking the people that were going to be our speakers here in Orlando. Oh, that'd be amazing. I would love any kind of insight. I do have a, a TEDx coach uh, yeah. and I've gone through a couple. <laughs> I've gone through a couple of programs. Yeah. Um, uh, some of them not quite as successful as I was as hoping they would be. Uh, but my current coach, I've been with him now for about a month. And uh, he's been very, very influential, very, very helpful, but I'm always open. Okay. Hearing, well, then I'm going to uh, go ahead and share these uh, right now. So okay. what are the best ways that, because I always get asked this question a lot, it's on my LinkedIn profile, you know, how, how can we get to do a TED talk or a TEDx talk? The easiest way to get in to do a TEDx talk is first to know somebody and have them recommend you. And so sure. I know you and I can recommend you to any of the places that you go because they pay attention to the organizers or previous TEDx speakers. So okay. if you have other friends that are speakers and we're all saying everybody should have you on there, that's the first thing that helps okay. you top of the list. The second thing that is very, very important to remember is that when you're going to do a TED talk, it's not about you. It is about the theme that they are showcasing. So your talk needs to be focused on that theme so that they can tell that you can address that topic succinctly. Stick to just three points as to, because you have to submit a demo, mm -hmm. uh, three points that you would like to be able to share with the judges, the panel that's going to decide if you're going to be there and be fairly focused on telling a story. It's more about the story and the journey. Uh, if you've done the Pecha, I know it's either Pecha Kucha. I, a lot of people <laughs> like to say it that way, but it's also Pachakacha, if we're saying it the right way. Uh, okay. I've been told by Japanese. Okay. Um, and I did one of those. And you have to be able to do the 20 slides and tell a story and let it roll with no words on there. You will do 
just fine. Um, I'm glad to hear that you have a coach because the coach will help you to realize that you need to pause instead of saying ums, just remember to pause like I just did gather your thoughts and then in post edit, this is where it becomes very important in post every type of speaker that we've ever had, we always have to send those uh, videos to the headquarters of Ted. They go through there and they'll do some post editing and they take out all the ums. If, if they think it's good enough to make it a Ted talk. So you can fast track your talk that way. Uh, so just to summarize, remember you're telling a story, stick to three things that you want your audience to be able to follow in what you're going to share. Really don't hesitate to just think about pausing and I'll add one more. Make sure you leverage your network of people that can help you get up to the top and be selected. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been the best podcast ever. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Did your coach tell you those su suggestions by chance? A few of them. Yes. Uh, as, as far as, um, the three points, he hasn't been specific. And I said, I'm there. Uh, typically I try to avoid oh, my, podcast, so we get away with that, <laughs> but I, he didn't specifically say the three points so far, but what we've been doing is more of and, and because I just started working with him. We're kind of in a more of a discovery type phase of exactly the work that I've done previously with some of my other Ted coaches. Um, well, I'm really my Ted coach. I only had one other organization that I ended up trying to work with and I just didn't get the level of attention that I was looking for. Uh, it was more of a group setting and I'm, I, I require a lot of attention. Just ask my wife. <laughs> so I don't operate very well in a group setting. I need more of a personalized one-on-one -on -one experience. So that was why my experience with that organization didn't necessarily work as well as I was hoping. And Based that's why I've is what you're saying. It, yeah, exactly. My learning style. And that was one of the reasons I went with a private coach. So although I invested in that company and didn't necessarily see the ROI that I was looking for, now I've invested in a private coach and we're making a lot more progress in a much shorter amount of time as well. And he's much more in tune with the, the philosophical side of the storytelling and the impact that my stories can have on others. I've and I don't mean to dive so deep into this right out of the gate, but had a very interesting life. One that I just kind of assumed was somewhat, somewhat normal, but I've learned over the years that as I tell some parts of my story, people look at me and they're just, they're just dumbfounded. They're going, how are you even still alive? Exactly. And, and I'm like, I, I'm like, why are you, how, why are you shocked? Doesn't everybody experience that? And they're like, yeah. no, dude, <laughs> no, that's not normal. That's not the way that my life was. And I've seen so much more of that, the more that I've started to share my story. So uh, according to the coach that I'm working with, I have multiple TED talks in me and we're, we've got a couple that we've keyed up. And those are the two that we're running with for now, looking for the proper themes and the proper application of one of the two talks and we're going to go that direction and honestly my goal is to do multiple talks and, and I, I know that's a goal for a lot of people but mm -hmm. I, I firmly believe that not only can i deliver multiple talks and, and this is a fairly arrogant statement but i believe i can give them in a way that provides tremendous value to the audience mm -hmm. and can actually inspire people to move on to potentially the next stage of their life or have a deeper understanding of how things are changing and evolving around us day to day. And in doing that, we're looking for a variety of different venues. He's taken the TEDx perspective and he's kind of ranked the, the TED Talks and given them an A, B, and C type value. Right. And no disrespect to any of the talks whatsoever, but some, maybe the production value isn't quite 100% there. Yep. Maybe you don't get the 3D large TEDx logo on the stage. Right. Maybe it doesn't have multiple camera angles, that sort of thing. So the approach we're taking right now is I just really want to do my first one. So I'm not picky as to the stage. Plus, it's a great learning experience and and there's tremendous value in getting that first one under your belt. So we're not being overly picky with the venues or the 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 themes, as long as what I can talk about obviously applies to those themes. So I'm all about doing a what he's ranked as a C-level talk. Mm -hmm. And then after we get that one done, step it up to a B or an A-level type talk where you have the, the higher production values and you get that, that real TEDx type experience. So that's kind of where I'm going with it. 
Uh, hopefully that angle plays out and hopefully that works. I don't know if it's a good strategy or not. He seems to be confident in it. I'm very open-minded to it, but um, yeah, I can definitely help you in that arena. And that even the awesome. other company that I worked with, uh, I've got access to their resources still because it's a lifetime access to their resources. And in my opinion, that was one of the strongest values that I got from signing up with them was they have a database that they maintain every month and they consistently add new talks to the database. And you can go in and query that database and find all the latest talks with links to the applications and the whole nine yards. So that was a tremendous value add there. I didn't even expect to get this from my current coach. It just showed up. I was like, oh, cool. This is awesome. And yeah. uh, so it's it's literally, and it looks like it's just national talks. Because uh, yeah. I, I briefly looked at it last night. I didn't see anything necessarily international. And being from Texas, I wanted to see how many were in Texas. Because it'd be kind of cool to do a TED Talk in my home state. Mm -hmm. So I think there's 27 for the rest of the year in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, some of those are happening this month. And there's no way I'm going to get into those. But there's several other opportunities for some neighboring cities even. I wouldn't even have to travel more than maybe 30 minutes away from my house. And that would be amazing to be able to go to someplace and do it that close to the house. So, uh, But anyways, that's what I'm doing with, with the TEDx thing. It's a major, major goal of mine. And I, I think with my life experience and some of my story, I just really think there's an opportunity to provide some tremendous value to some other well, folks that are maybe looking for right. answers. And yeah. just to go back to, it's not arrogant. That isn't arrogant. That is, um, to me, there are going to be those that are not as brave that will go up and they, they have a great story to share, but they won't go and do it. And the fact that you're willing to go and do that, it's, it's about being brave and actually helping others. So you are definitely somebody, in my opinion, somebody that's very brave and is very open and, and you've stripped that mask off of your face and made it so that somebody else that's just not quite there yet, just like what you said, they're going to so benefit by you getting up there and sharing. So kudos to you. Cool deal. Thank you so much. All right. So we're going back to how I typically kick it off. I love this. <laughs> so this sorry. Awesome. Did this not mean to derail the train right out of the gate. Yeah. And so what I really hope is that, um, and, and I'm going to put something in here because my team said I need to do this too, is like, we really want to make sure that everybody that is a guest on our show, that they go and subscribe to us on our Employers for Change YouTube channel, but also go and subscribe to our podcast. Um, we have a thousand podcasts. I don't know about you, but I have a lot that I follow and, and I listen to, but also to those that love the show. So we ask that people do that. So I put that one in there too. Okay. I have that call to action. You do. What are five <laughs> words that you would use to describe yourself to someone that you're just now meeting? Yeah, uh, that's interesting. We talked about this in the green room before we started hitting record. And I don't know that I can really narrow it down to five, but if, okay, if anything, over, but uh, if loud, uh, fun, uh, energetic, uh, podcaster speaker. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a combination there. And we just, we just knocked out five that easy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I like it. So I just, uh, put it in there. So we, we really kind of summarized what it is that you just did in the initial question as to, you know, how did you, you know, even get started in the whole Ted thing? Um, so you said podcaster, how long have you been doing? No, I'm going to save that for last. Um, you said <laughs> loud. Why did you say loud? I'm curious. Cause I'm loud. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's definitely not uncommon for me to be somewhere. And I see someone, I don't know, 20 minutes later and they go, dude, I knew you were here. I could hear you from down the hall, or I could hear you downstairs. <laughs> even I was literally at an event like two weeks ago and it was at a hotel here in Dallas. And I was on the second floor talking out in the foyer area. Maybe we were on a break or whatever. And someone downstairs heard me and they ran up the escalator to find me and they could find me because of that. They heard me. And that happens all the time. All the so time. You don't use your inside voice is what you're saying. I don't know that there is such a thing for me. I, I don't even know that there's volume controls. I, I just don't think they exist for Larry. So even when I whisper, I've had people go, dude, be quiet. And I'm like, bro, I'm whispering. And they're like, no, you're not. So, so loud is, is definitely a, a, an adjective that describes Larry quite accurately. Yeah. I don't know if that's a bad thing. I'm always around. A, I work in a co-working space and there's nothing but a bunch of men. They all have loud voices. So I kind of think it's a guy thing. I'm not sure. 
I don't know. I, I'm a lot louder than most guys. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll let you have that one then. All right. I'm going to own it. <laughs> you said fun, but you also said that you were a wannabe comedian. So let's expound on that one. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what, when I got started into podcasting. My first show was a comedy podcast. And, you know, growing up in the 80s, comedy was always an escape for me. Uh, I loved watching the comedians that I wasn't supposed to watch growing up. Uh, grew up, I went to a Christian school my whole life, from oh. grade school all the way up to high school. And there was a reason behind that, more so than just the religious aspects of it. But I also grew up in a very violent home stepdad super violent super aggressive fighting all the time throughout the trailer as i grew up in a trailer park uh and and my escape was two things it was martial arts and it was comedy and uh, i i just knew that if i knew martial arts and knew how to fight i could solve all my problems there but when fighting wasn't my focus it was always laughing and I, I, I remember many, many, many nights where I'm sitting there and watching Scrambled HBO. And for those of you, if you're not in the right age demographic, you don't even understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. But used to back in the day, you could you could turn on HBO if you didn't have a subscription, but it was scrambled. So you couldn't really see the screen because it was all wavy and, and, and jumbled there. But I would turn it on and I would listen to the comedians that would have their specials on HBO, whether it be Robin Williams or Howie Mandel or Sam Kinison or Andrew Dice Clay or George Carlin or any of the guys that I weren't supposed to be listening to. <laughs> but that was my escape. And I fell in love with comedy at a very, very early age. Uh, and it was something that I always wanted to do. But getting on stage and telling jokes is a lot different than sitting in a classroom telling jokes or sitting at the lunch table and telling jokes. Uh, that's more conversational jokes. And it's very easy to apply a sense of humor in those scenarios, at least if you have that extroverted personality. But being able to take that now and, and channel that and put that into a podcast or put that into uh, an open mic or put that into a, a performance on stage in front of a room of people that are staring at you going, make me laugh is much more intimidating than trying to make your buddy laugh while you're having a conversation over a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or whatever it may be. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So when I first started podcasting, I saw it as an opportunity. Sorry about that. I had to clear my throat, but uh, I came into podcasting when I heard an episode of Joe Rogan and go figure. Right. <laughs> but on that episode of Joe Rogan, he had two comedians, Tony Hinchcliffe and Joey Diaz. And they're two modern day comedians. Both of them are hilarious in their own way, but they reminded me of the comedians of the eighties. They were telling rather aggressive, um, potentially not even potentially, but offensively uh, offensive type jokes. And I was rolling and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can tell my style of comedy if I start a podcast. So that's what I started doing. I started a podcast and uh, I, I partnered with an open mic comedian here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. That was the son of one of my best friends. And we started the podcast and it grew and grew and grew and was what some would call successful. Uh, we were getting a significant number of downloads per episode. We took the show to an internet radio station here in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. We also ended up taking it as a live stage show at a club here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And we shopped it around to a variety of different venues. And we finally found a club that was under new management and they were just looking for an act. So we pitched our idea. They said yes. And it was a live stage show up until just a few months ago. And keep in mind, we started this in 14. And it was a stage show up until just, uh, it was either earlier this year, what are we, April? Maybe late last year when the venue was shut down. So it stayed there for years and years and years, seven, eight years. Uh, it was a live stage show. And it actually ended up evolving over the years into being an open mic for DFW comedians or Dallas-Fort Worth comedians. And at one point, it was the largest comic open mic in Dallas-Fort Worth outside of a comedy club. And we did that all from the podcast. And my co-host, his name is Jamie Gravitt. He went on to get a residency at the New Sahara in Las Vegas, opening for Eddie Griffin. Uh, he just won a contest down in Austin this past weekend for sketch comedy. So his entire life changed because of the podcast. And he went on to have a very, very successful and continues to have a growing and very successful comedy career. 
that all started with a Yeti snowball microphone sitting in there in the ottoman in the other room <laughs> as we recorded our first very, very poor quality podcast. Oh, that is such a fun story. So I'm curious because you said a couple things that I went, all right. So didn't know about scrambling the HBO. I wasn't as devious, I think, as that. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't, I didn't think devious. about it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so you while you couldn't see it, you could actually hear it was like perfectly clear. Oh, yeah. 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 Wanted? The audio is perfect. Yeah. You, you, oh the God. audio was perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You really didn't need that. OK, that was interesting. Um, I I don't guess people can do that kind of stuff now. Um, that was no, I mean, you have to have a subscription now. You don't even get to just turn it on and watch the watch the wavy lines. It's just yeah. you, you can't even log on. So, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, which one of those was your favorite comedian out of the <laughs> list that you share? <laughs> My favorite all time is Sam Kinison. No, no, if ands oh, or buts about it. Yeah, he's he's pretty raw. He's pretty raw. And, you know, that was uh, it's, it's funny you said raw because Eddie Murphy was always a favorite as well. And one of my memories that I have, I was 16, 17 years old when Eddie Murphy raw came out, yeah. you know, it's a, one of his specials. And I remember going to the movies and this didn't happen often. Very rarely did we do anything as a quote unquote family. But I remember one night we went to the movies and my mom and, and my dad, they went to see overboard with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. And I thought I was getting drugged to this, this little bromance comedy thing. Right. Right. Uh, but no, I said, can I please go see Eddie Murphy raw? And they bought me a ticket to Eddie Murphy Raw, and, and I got to go watch it. Bad, right? Oh, they knew it was horrible. Yeah, they knew exactly what it was. I mean, you know, they were they they, they knew, uh, but they still bought me a ticket to Eddie Murphy Raw, and that's one of my fondest memories growing up. How old <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I was probably 16, you know, 16, oh, 17 years oh, old, something old like that. Enough. So, I mean, yeah, it wasn't anything that I probably hadn't heard before, yeah. but I mean, Raw, even at the time and back then, you know, cancel culture wasn't really a thing in the 80s, even late 80s when this came out. And uh, but it was still it was raw for a reason. He called it raw because it was raw. Yeah. And uh, it was still something to be because you couldn't even buy a ticket at the time unless you were I think you had to be 18 to even buy a ticket. Yeah. And uh, so they bought the ticket for me and I got to got to go watch Eddie Murphy. I will raw. tell you that I think Sam Kinison is is way, way, way worse than Eddie Murphy. I think Eddie Murphy, because he was so hysterically funny and his facial expressions were just off the charts. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he was so likable though, too. You know, he was just an extremely um, likable, like somebody you wanted to hang out with. Of course. Yeah. yeah. The others know, but there was a different, definite vibe by, you know, all of them, George Carlin. My dad loves George Carlin. Sure. He's brilliant. Yeah. His wordplay is next level. Nobody was the wordsmith that George Carlin was. Oh my gosh. So intelligent. Yeah. And then all of the others that you named, you know, there's just like, because we're having this and this is not a question that I was going <laughs> to throw it out there anyway. I feel like uh, comedians, it's like the last place you can actually say things and not be called, um, not be called out because, oh, that's now you're being a racist or whatever. People just see it as you're just being funny. You're not about, you're not getting slammed for not being uh, inclusive or, or being unkind or using microaggressions or. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, 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 you know, interesting over the last couple of years, you have seen that in, in comedy and it has been, I mean, we're seeing comedians get canceled left and right, at least over the past few years, it's really? getting back to where the comedian said, I don't care. I'm uncancelable. You can't cancel me for telling a joke. Uh, and so we're, we've seen kind of a rebellion there and literally it's been just a couple, three weeks now, maybe, maybe a month, Joe Rogan opened his new comedy club in Austin and Austin has become the hotbed of comedy throughout the entire country. You know, mm -hmm. it used to be, it was Los Angeles and the comedy store. That's the name of the club, yeah. uh, was the home of all the great comedians. Everybody started, uh, you know, in their careers yeah. at the comedy store and things have shifted somewhat. Not to say the comedy store is not, is it, not still a massive influence in the space, but it's not quite as influential as it once was. And a lot of the LA comedians have moved to Austin and Joe just opened the comedy mothership right here in Austin about a month ago. And that specifically was his mission statement was to open a venue that was a safe space for comedians to tell jokes without the fear of retribution or cancellation. Mm, I love that because it really should be that. Now I watch a lot of comedians on Netflix 
And I, you know, I usually will pick the women just because I want to see like, who are the new up and coming ones. Sure. Um, but I've, I've seen a lot of the newbies and they're, they're not playing it necessarily safe. And Netflix no. is great about just putting, you know, the, the real, the real show out there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love what Netflix has done uh, as far as giving the venues to comedians to come out and perform. And you're right. There is a, you can go either direction on Netflix. There is oh, representation the from one. all sorts of comedians. And yeah. I think that's amazing having that platform, regardless of where you're at or what your stance is. Yeah. Uh, I, I think just having that venue is, is, is tremendous. Yeah, and I've Netflix has done a really good so job. Specialized because I've seen, you know, like Vietnamese, I've seen people that are Filipino and sure. are just different groups. And I'm going, well, this is nice. It is, it is definitely giving a platform for more people to get out there and do it. Um, and then totally any topic that you can think of is, is out there. hundred percent. Oh, I wish now I'm going to go find you uh, and see what your stand up is like. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> there was a, there's a, there's a, uh, there, there, there's a show called kill Tony. And, uh, I mentioned the two comedians that I heard on the Joe Rogan podcast was Tony Hinchcliffe was one of them. And he has a show called kill Tony. And what it is, it's a venue for comedians to come up. And if you want to get on stage and do your best 60 second set, you throw your, your, your name in a hat. And if you're lucky enough to get your name drawn, you get to go up and do a set. And then they basically just roast you afterwards. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was lucky or unlucky enough to get chosen <laughs> twice. So I've been on kill Tony a couple of times. That uh, is doing so some cool. stuff. There. Okay. So that was kind of that. Cool. Do you have video? Can I find that? You can find it. It's on YouTube. They look for you. Uh, kill Tony in Dallas. And I'm on the, um, I'm there. I think it's episode one Oh four, I think is, is one of them. And I don't okay. remember what the other one is, but yeah, they are definitely there. I've regrettably shared those more than once. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. So cool. So, well, we covered loud, fun, entertaining, podcaster, comedian. We've covered all of these things. Sure. Um, so how did where did you get started in school? How did you end up to where you are? What was what was your career? Because obviously you were a comedian, but when you were first thinking, gee, what do I want to be when I grow up? What was that? Oh man, I went through so many different things. I just didn't want to live in a trailer park. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a very interesting childhood because as I mentioned, I went to private school, but I also grew up very poor. My grandmother paid for me to go to private school. And the reason I was in private school to begin with is I was born with a birth defect. So mm -hmm. I was born with an inverted sternum. So instead of my chest and my, my skeleton growing outwards, it was inverted. So everything was growing inwards. Ooh. And while my lungs and heart and all my organs were growing outwards because I was growing, they were expanding, but my chest cavity was contracting. So I was literally being crushed alive um, and I wasn't going to make it to the age of five. So when I was four, <laughs> got a year ahead of it, uh, I had major, major reconstructive surgery on my chest. I had what they call a sternotomy and they went in and they sawed my sternum they broke it in multiple places sawed off some ribs did a whole variety of mixing and matching and reshaping and then put me all back together so what ended up happening was i was a very very fragile little child yeah. uh, and so they didn't want me going to public school because it was afraid i'd get roughed up and in the in the first few years after the surgery any kind of damage could have been fatal so I had to be handled very much with kid gloves, if you would, if you want to use that term. So they put me in private school. And over the years, I just ended up staying in private school. Uh, but again, my grandma, she paid for everything school related. But when, uh, as I was growing up, we were very, very poor, extremely poor. Uh, lots of drugs in the house and all kinds of fun stuff there. Um, so it made for an interesting, as I got older, it made for a very interesting dichotomy because I was going to this nice preppy, yuppie little school, but I lived down the street in the trailer park. So that made for some interesting conversations and interesting dealing with friends that, you know, they had nice big houses and the rich neighborhoods and all that fun stuff. And then Larry was down the street at the, at the trailer park. So all I knew growing up was I wanted to do something that made a lot of money. Uh, I, I was typically uh, somewhat talented in art. I could sketch and draw, and uh, I kind of had an affinity for that. But it was never really nurtured. The school that I went to was so small. We didn't have like art programs. I mean, we didn't even have a football team. I, I, my graduating class was five. 
<laughs> so oh I graduated high school in, with five people and I was in the top five. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> but it made, you know, getting into some of the more uh, uh, extracurricular activities very, very difficult because they didn't offer that sort of thing. Um, so I, I started getting heavily involved in, I knew business was, was the way to go. I wanted to be in business, whatever the heck that meant. I had no idea. Uh, we used to drive by the, the, uh, the Merrill Lynch building in Dallas on our way to play basketball. And I'd be like, Oh, one day I'm going to work at the Merrill Lynch building. It was a cool looking building. And I knew if you worked there, you're going to make a lot of money, but it didn't quite work out that way. I thought it was going to be a stockbroker, this sort of thing. Uh, but what actually ended up happening was my girlfriend got pregnant. I graduated high school and my parents said, uh, okay, cool. You graduated high school. We're going, cause when I was really young, we used to bounce back and forth between Stockton, California and North Texas. So as soon as I graduated high school, they went, all right, we're out. We're going back to California. You can either come with us or you can stay here. And there's nothing for me in California. My girlfriend's pregnant. Uh, all my friends are in Texas. So what did I do? I stayed in Texas and uh, instead of actually going to school, I didn't go to college. I have six whole credit hours to my name. Uh, and I didn't even take those until I think I was about 27 when I, when I, when I snagged those six college uh, community college credit hours. Um, but I ended up not going to school, came right out of high school and sold cars for several years, uh, sold cars for several years while I continued to train in karate and martial arts. Uh, then in the mid nineties, I opened a karate school and that failed miserably. But even though my school failed, I ended up getting connected with a school there in Sherman, Texas was the head instructor there for several years and kind of bounced around from a couple of different schools in North Texas there. But karate was the way of life and martial arts was the way of life. And that's what I became obsessed with. And it was everything in my power. I wanted to be the absolute best fighter that I can be. Cause if you think back. Uh, when I was sitting in my bedroom watching comedy, I was also watching martial arts movies. So fighting was always at the forefront. And I think it's interesting because I was so frail as a child that I wanted to prove I wasn't frail. I had this, uh, th this, I, I just didn't feel I was adequate. And I felt that if I could fight, then I could prove my adequacy. You know, I could prove that I was the tough guy. So I lacked a lot of self-confidence uh, growing up and even into my 20s. Uh, lacked a lot of a lot of confidence and a lot of, you know, we say I'm loud now. Definitely wasn't really all that loud then. You know, it was pretty reserved, pretty quiet. Um, so martial arts became the forefront of everything that I did. And I figured, you know, I don't need to go to college. I'll just get my black belt and that'll be my master's degree. And uh, karate will solve all my problems. And that was my focus up until the late 90s. Uh, karate evolved into mixed martial arts. And uh, like ultimate fighting championship type fighting uh, that came to the United States in 1993. And it just blew everybody's mind in the martial arts world. Oh my gosh, all this stuff we've been doing all these years. You mean to tell me it doesn't work? So we had to kind of readjust things. And I started getting into mixed martial arts and I started competing in submission grappling and mixed martial arts fights in the nineties. And uh, my goal was to eventually make it to the UFC. Uh, that was that was my goal. And I had teammates that made it to the big show. They they were there. So I'm thinking, that's where I'm going to. And uh, that was actually kind of ripped away from me. Because if we think back to my birth defect, right? Uh, growing up, as I continued to grow and my body continued to uh, take shape, uh, the structure of my body called my caused my lungs to become deformed. If you see an x-ray of my lungs right now, they go up just above my clavicle even, and they go all the way down almost into my hips. So mm -hmm. they're very long and tubular. And after testing in a variety of different ways, we discovered that I have 60% of the normal person's lung capacity. Wow. So I had these aspirations of being a professional fighter on the big stage. And no matter how hard I trained or the time I invested or the coaches I had or any of that, my body physically could not take me to the next level. So once I started competing against athletes that knew how to fight as compared to just want to be tough guys, I started realizing, oh, this probably isn't going to work out. But it really hit me when I went to Houston. I had, I had a fight in Homa, Louisiana that was scheduled. And I, we stopped off in Houston, Texas to train at a gym there. And the coach at that gym at the time was the number one coach on the planet. Uh, he had world champions in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. He trained all the all the greats back in the '90s, Tito Ortiz and, and Rico Rodriguez, and the name the laundry list of names. And they all held UFC titles back then. 
and I was wrestling or grappling with a UFC fighter uh, in his gym that day. And Saul, that's the name of the coach, Saul Solis, and he recently passed away. But Saul Solis walked by, and he just looked at me. He goes, your cardio is a little suspect, bro. And that's when it dawned on me that my cardio was never going to get to the level that I needed it to get to. Because I knew for this particular fight, I trained my backside off. I had invested in everything, dietitians and, and strength and conditioning coaches and reflex coaches and doctors and masseuse and you name it. I did everything to get prepared for this. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, it, it hit me that, oh my God, this isn't going to happen. So a whole bunch of things came out of that. But uh, I eventually, because of that, or once I realized that, I started kind of backing off the fight game and backing off of martial arts completely. And uh, yeah, that just changed the whole world. So at that point, I realized I needed to get a job. <laughs> so so I had actually ended up going to a, a place called Manpower, uh, oh, which yeah. was a temp- temporary agency. And back home in Sherman Denison here in, in Texas, there's really not much going on other than factory work. So uh, Manpower got me on at Texas Instruments, and I worked there for not long, maybe two months as a temp, and they brought me on full-time. Uh, and I worked uh, in a clean room there for several months. So I put on my little ninja suit and everything and walked into a what they call a class 10 room, which means there's only 10 particles of anything every square cubic foot of air. So I worked in that environment for a while, and they had a job opening for a corporate trainer. Now, as a martial arts instructor, I was used to being in front of classrooms. I was used to teaching. I was used to facilitating. And I knew I was a perfect fit for this. And it turns out I was, and they hired me. So I did that for a couple of years and then leveraged that to get a training position at a company down in Coppell, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. And I ended up staying there for 21 years. Wow. And I was there up until I left January 4th of 2021. And this is what I do today. Podcasting, content creation, coaching, speaking, facilitating, all of that comes into play now. But the vast majority of it is from OJT or on the job training. So I, but I invested a lot too. I mean, although I didn't go to college, I was always in, in speaking organizations, whether it be Toastmasters or I, I invested in taking speaking courses. I invested in voiceover classes. I did a little voiceover over the years. Uh, I took comedy classes. I did pretty much anything and everything that has to do with communicating to elevate my communication game to the next level. So it wasn't that all this just came naturally, but I I ended up investing in it, although it wasn't at a a four-year university. Wow. That's a story. I felt like my mouth was going to drop once you started telling me at five, you had to have this (laughs) surgery. And just like you had started at the beginning of the show saying like, people were going like, wow, how are you? I sat there and I was going, oh my God. I'm thinking what a horrible thing for a small child to have to go through. That wasn't cool. You know, and I don't remember a whole lot, obviously. I mean, that was 46 years ago, a long time ago, but I I do have some faint memories of, of waking up uh, post-surgery in uh, excruciating pain and having to be rushed to the hospital. That, for some reason, I guess because it was so traumatic, that sticks with me. And then, of course, I have photographs and stuff of me in the hospital and me before I go into like surgery. And... Frankenstein together. As oh, well. yeah. I mean, I have a scar going from like right there, kind of where my, my clavicles come together here uh, mm. and goes all the way down to about, a, I don't know, an inch above my, my, my belly button. So it's a very, very long scar. And then I've got uh, three on each side dot type scars where I had tubes running in and out and all kinds of fun stuff. So yeah, it's a uh, good looking. <laughs> You're inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> you have this great sense of humor about it too. I mean, you're using it. I'm I'm curious because you said your girlfriend was pregnant. And again, an unplanned question is, so what did you have? <laughs> you have a child out there. Is, did you have a boy? I do. I, I have, I have two. I have a daughter and I have a son. Uh, my daughter is 31 and my son is uh, about to be 28. So I'm going to guess one of them might be pretty funny also. Um. I mean, they're, they're, they're somewhat funny. They don't have those personalities. That's funny. My son's pretty withdrawn. He's, he's very introverted. Yeah. Uh, so he's pretty quiet. He's one of those video game kids that just lived in the video games, but he's next level brilliant. I mean, the kid speaks fluent Russian. He did go to a university, graduated from Texas A&M. 
uh, with a degree in Russian. Uh, he, he wanted to do uh, linguistics, but they didn't actually offer a linguistics program. So he ended up focusing on Russian. And he's lived in Russia the whole nine yards. Uh, now he's come back and he's heavily involved. He got his CCISP or CISSP, I think it is, which is the highest certification you can get in cybersecurity. So I joke because I think he's a spy. So he's in cybersecurity and he speaks Russian. I mean, there's something going on there. I think he's working for an alphabet agency somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Something, something I would go. Yeah. Something's going on there. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And my daughter, I mean, she's next level brilliant as well. She's a PA uh, with, with her focus on kinesiology and sports medicine. Uh, she was on her way to be a, a high level uh, university level cheerleader and she blew out her knee, which took everything uh, out of that deal. And she just channeled that same athletic energy into sports medicine. She became a trainer at her high school. Uh, she went to a, a Houston area high school. And I didn't know this was such a thing, but she was the greater Houston area athletic trainer of the year. I wow. guess uh, she knew how to wrap ankles better than anybody. I don't know exactly what all that entails. Uh, but then she ended up getting a, a, a uh, they didn't do a full ride, but it was their biggest uh, scholarship to Texas Wesleyan University, which is a private college over in Fort Worth, where she graduated with her degree. And now she's got two little rugrats and married and all kinds of fun stuff. So they have gone on to be very, very successful. So we're going to take just a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, um, Transcend Network, and we'll be right back. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments, receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for edtech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. And so now we're back to the second half of our show. And this has been such an engaging story. And we still haven't even finished some really fun questions. So we're going to have to do some good weaving in here as to what's going on. So um, I'm going to come back over here because you have all of these interesting things that you've done. But I'm going to jump to a question. Okay. It's the hardest lesson that you learned that changed your life. I mean, the hardest lesson that I learned was, and it goes back to, there in, in late 99 or 2000, where I found out I wasn't going to be able to fulfill uh, basically a childhood dream and, and be that high level professional fighter. Uh, what I ended up doing there was instead of learning from that and persevering through the challenge and the, and the obstacles that I was faced with, I kind of gave into it. Mm. And uh, I started partying uh, and I switched into kind of that corporate after hours lifestyle where we'd get off work and we'd go to the bar and then we'd stay at the bar and we'd close the place down. And then it eventually became more of a cheers type environment where everybody at the bar knew my name, knew the entire wait staff, knew the chefs. I mean, it knew everybody, right? And I use the term chef lightly there. So I just didn't want yeah. to say cooks, but we literally knew everybody there. And I did that for years. And then it eventually got out of control and I succumbed to the alcohol. And uh, there at the end of 2013, November 14th of 2013, uh, found myself in a position of either I needed to get help. And this was after uh, a multiple week bender, me sitting out of work. I'd already been in the hospital in July of 13 as well for alcohol poisoning. Uh, but then I was sitting there on that day uh, there in November. And I shouldn't have had this moment of clarity because I was drunk beyond belief. And I had been for weeks, literally. All I was taking in was gin and pre-mixed Special K breakfast shakes. So... <laughs> I should not have had any clarity in my head whatsoever, but something told me, whether it's a higher power or whatever you believe in, said, Larry, if you don't get help today, you're not going to see tomorrow. It's just that simple. Yeah. And uh, so I managed somehow to pick up the phone and I called my best friend. I said, Kenny, it's time. Uh, I need help. I'm about to die. And before you knew it, everybody on the other end of the phone, <clears throat> Kenny worked with my wife. We all worked at the same place. They went to... Uh, he's the vice president of our IT department. And I worked in IT at the time, told him what was going on. He jumped into action before you knew it. Kenny and my wife were back at the house. They were scooping me up and they took me to a facility here in North Texas called Interhealth. Uh, they have a ranch in a small town called Van Austin, very high end, uh, facility. And I ended up doing seven weeks there and uh, been sober ever since. So, I mean, that's definitely a revised version of the story, but my lesson there was, is that when you're faced with these challenges and these obstacles and when things don't go according to plan, that we have to look at things differently and figure out how to adjust that plan 
to still fulfill our overall goals instead of giving into those obstacles and falling prey. And, and I heard a term this morning and it was called involuntary suffering. And I just heard this this morning. And instead of putting ourselves into a position of involuntary suffering, we need to be more cognizant of our surroundings and cognizant of what we still bring to the table and the opportunities that still lie in front of us and move towards that opportunities instead of wallowing in. And this got me in trouble with my first potential TEDx talk <laughs> with the coaches. I coined a term called pity, P-I-T-Y, pity porn. And I was, I felt like at the time I was addicted to pity or self-pity porn because I would just sit there and wallow in it. I would listen to depressing music and I would watch depressing movies and I would think depressing thoughts. And all I could think of was how pathetic it was and how sad it was and how tragic it was and how hard I had it. And I just gave into all of this. And that's what led to that negative, that the negative thought process led me to that negative lifestyle. So that involuntary suffering, I think is a much better word than pity porn, but in my mind, uh, it means the same thing that we voluntarily make ourselves suffer and feel pity for ourselves instead of moving forward. And that's the biggest lesson. Don't wallow in that voluntary suffering. Go beyond the voluntary suffering and find something else to channel that energy or find a different direction to channel that energy. Uh, as you can see, coming out of rehab in 2014, I found podcasting just like two months later. And I channeled all my energy into podcasting. The same passion and the same level of intensity that I had for martial arts back in the day, I have for podcasting today. And now nine years later, it's my business. It's my life. It's my passion. It's everything. Mm -hmm. So why did I have to waste 13 years with that voluntary suffering? Yeah. Why didn't I take and learn that lesson right out of the gate without going through that 13 years of nonsense? Um, I'm kind of hard-headed. That's probably a, a sixth word to describe me. Yeah. So it, it is very difficult for me to learn at times. But once I do learn, uh, I, I like to tell the story, share the story, and help others learn and maybe cut that, you know, reduce the size of that learning curve for others. So that's probably the biggest lesson. That is, you know, that's a beautiful story too, because, you know, it had a hard lesson, but it also came to a place of gratefulness and willingness to share. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that our, our experiences do nothing for anybody if we don't share them. Yeah, that's true. It, it's, it's really no different than the, the voluntary suffering. It mm -hmm. does nothing for anyone, including you. It doesn't feel good. It, it doesn't, it's not productive. There's, there's no sense in it. Uh, but again, I didn't learn that lesson until I went through it and went through it at the, at the, the darkest level that you possibly can. Hmm. So we're moving to 2030 and I'm going to weave some of our other questions into this. Um, what do you I'm think? I'm sorry. I'm such a difficult interview. I apologize. Oh, God, this is like so interesting. <laughs> so interesting. I'm going, okay, I have to, you know, kind of collapse some things together here because you're okay. You're Dosakis, just so you know. Okay. Most interesting men I've met. <laughs> yeah. You're a I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome. That should be like one of your new things. Um, so let's weave together. It's what do you think 2030 is going to look like? Sure. Red Hat Media. Sure. Talk to us about how did Red Hat Media become the name? And you're talking a lot about chat GPT, which I went to your session in PodFest uh, 2023 in January. And yeah. I was just like going, wow, this is really good stuff that you're sharing. So how do you blend all of those things together? Red Hat, how'd you get to there? Um, 2030 and chat GPT. Cool. All right. Let's start with Red Hat. Where did it come from? Yeah. Uh, back in Tampa, Florida, uh, it was at PodFest Origins. I think it happened in November of 21, maybe, yeah. uh, maybe 20, no, 22 was just last year. So it was November of 21. Uh, a good friend of mine, Alex Sanfilippo, I'm sure you know Alex. I He's do. the owner and founder of PodMatch. Uh, he and I, we give each other a hard time every time we come off stage just for fun. We're, I mean, we don't, we, we're just the best of friends and we love to give each other a hard time. And I spoke at Tampa and of course I came off stage and he greeted me at the back of the back of the room. He goes, great talk, blah, 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 blah. He goes, but I got to ask you, why are you wearing that red Supreme hat? Because what I was wearing at the time was a hat that was branded by the brand name Supreme. 
And if you're not familiar with that brand, it's just what all those wacky kids were wearing. And I was wearing it in a way because I wanted to be able to relate to a younger audience. Again, I mentioned I'm, I'm, at the time I was 48 or 49, 48, I guess. But I wanted to relate to a younger audience. So I was wearing some branded fashion equipment, right? And one of them was the hat. Mm -hmm. And it just, everything that Supreme does is red. So he goes, look, dude, I, I dig the red hat because I think it makes you stand out. It's kind of like a beacon in the night. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm about six, three and I weighed I it about, <laughs> yeah, about two forty. So I, I stand out in a crowd as it is, but then you put this bright red beacon on the top of my dome and I really stand out. And uh, so I said, he goes, unless Supreme is paying you, you, you shouldn't be repping their brand. You should be repping your brand. You should be the brand. Yeah, uh, because people know you as the podcast guy. So that made total sense. So I, I ran home and after that event, I tossed the Supreme hat to the side, jumped on Amazon, bought me a $6 red unbranded hat mm -hmm. and it changed so much. It's so insane. I almost overnight became the red hat guy. People started recognizing me for the hat. I get speaking gigs just because the hat because they want me to come in and talk about personal branding and how to stand out in a crowd. And it really was driven home to me in March of the following year. I think it was March 22. I went to Bitcoin Miami, which is a massive Bitcoin conference, 35,000 people in attendance over the span of three days. And over the course of those few days, I had multiple people out of 35,000 that walked up to me, people that I didn't know and go, aren't you that red hat guy, the podcast guy? And when I'm sitting there in a city that's not my home city, in a sea of 35,000 people, and people are walking up and recognizing me because of the red hat, the impact that was having on my personal brand was really, really driven home. People were recognizing me as, quote unquote, the red hat guy. Now, they may not know my name, but they knew I was the red hat guy, and they knew the red hat guy knew about podcasting. So that established a very, very solid foundation for me to start building my own personal brand on. Now people typically know my name. They may not still know my name, but they know the Red Hat guy again is podcasting. So over time, as I started to realize the impact that this Red Hat was having on everything that I was doing, it only made sense to embrace it. So I started rebranding everything and rebranding my company, rebranding my website, rebranding all my social media, rebranding everything to Red Hat Media. So I owe it all to Sal uh, Alex Filippo for pointing that out and then embracing it from there. So that's the story of the Red Hat. Love it. Okay. Uh, well, where were we so, at after that? I, I got 2030, lost. what does it look <laughs> oh, like? 2030. So you mentioned you went to my Chad GPT session there at PodFest. Hopefully you went to the Thursday session because it was much better than the Friday session in my own selfish opinion. So cool. Uh, <laughs> but I started getting into Chat GPT and, and AI I mean, I've always had a thing for IT. I, again, as I mentioned, even back in corporate, I was in the IT department uh, there at the end of my IT career. I was a business intelligence analyst, which honestly is a very, very degreed profession. Uh, but I was leveraging Microsoft's BI suite to take data from multiple sources, transform it and make it a uniform data set, put it back into a different database. And then we could do analysis and reporting off of that. So that was what I was doing at the time. So I have a very solid IT background. Uh, and when AI started to make its its case in the in the content creation space, I was like, man, this is something I really need to pay attention to. And then on November 30th of just last year, Chad GPT came out and we had access to interact with this natural language chat bot that OpenAI, which is the company that built Chad GPT, uh, turned loose on the public. Now they turned it loose on the public and we'd be kind of blind to not see that we're really just beta testing this tool for them. Yeah. So, but what ended up happening, they released it and it just exploded like wildfire. ChatGPT grew to over 100 million users in less than two months. That's insane growth. And since then, we started seeing all these other AI tools that are popping up, whether they're text-based like ChatGPT or Bard, Google's version of ChatGPT, or whether they're text-based that give us back graphics uh, such as MidJourney or OpenAI's DAL-E2. There's a ton of applications out there. And literally, there's hundreds and hundreds of them out there that have a content creation uh, application. And that's what blew me away. You know, again, started creating content in 2014 when I launched my first podcast. And it's evolved so much over the last nine years. And even more so over the last six months with all of this AI technology that's been made available to us. So 
I had to embrace it. I was blown away by it. I just love it. It's amazing to me to be able to give a little input or a little prompt and get back amazing results. I mean, you saw I wrote an entire children's book in about 15 minutes, yep. wrote it and illustrated it in about 15 minutes using these tools. So for that level of creativity to come into the space and that accessibility to that level of creativity, being out there for everyone to use blew me away and I instantly became obsessed with it. So where do I see this going for 2030? So here we are in 20, what, 23? Is that where we're at? Uh, so we got about seven years in, in order to see this evolution. Uh, the way things are going right now, it's, 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 it's even kind of scary. And it's not just scary from my perspective, but with the development of AI and the public accessibility of AI, I think we're going to continue to see an evolution in that arena. Uh, over the last probably month or so, uh, AGI has started to become a, a major focus for a lot of people and a major concern for a lot of people. Uh, AGI is artificial general intelligence. That's what the G stands for. And what you see there is it's essentially self-learning, almost self-aware AI. So it can continue to evolve and continue to learn without any additional input. And this is the kind of AI that we see in the movies. This is the kind of AI that we saw in Terminator. This is the kind of AI that we have to ask the question, can we as humans be replaced by AGI? What if the AGI model decides that it doesn't even want to deal with us anymore and completely locks us out of the system? That sounds like a sci-fi movie, but it's something that's a very, very real concern. It's such a real concern that just uh, the middle of March, we're st where are we at? Are we in April yet? We're we in are April. in April, right? So I think it was March 14th. Uh, it No, it was March. It was the end of March where Elon Musk and a variety of other high profile computer scientists, uh, they put together, they drafted a letter that uh, at the time, I haven't checked on it over the last couple of weeks, but the last time I looked, it had over 1300 signatures on it asking for all of these AI companies, Google and OpenAI slash Microsoft, to put a pause on all of these big AI type projects, all these advanced learning projects, until we get a governance put in place, until we get uh, a sense of checks and balances put in place. Because as it's evolving right now, there is a significant, a real world concern that we could lose control. So with that in mind, where does that take us to 2030? Very, very difficult to say, but things are evolving at such a rate that I don't think we have to wait till 2030 to see what the impact's going to be. I think we're going to see significant changes within the next 12 to 18 months. And depending on where we're at then, it's going to give us a better idea of where we're going for the future. AI is definitely here. It's definitely not a fad. Uh, I find it very interesting when I'm on social media and I see people start talking about ChatGPT and other AI tools. And they refer to them back as a fad. Uh, they refer back to them as, oh, remember what NFTs were just 12 months ago or even six months ago? Everybody was on the NFT bandwagon. Now they're on the AI bandwagon. But there's no similarities between the two. There's no applications that they share between the two. Two entirely different concepts that are not related in any way other than the fact that they're getting a ton of attention online. But whether they get that attention or not, AI is here to stay. NFTs in themselves, that technology, super sound. But the vast majority of the people out there didn't understand the technology behind NFTs. All they understood was that I'm paying $5,000 for a JPEG. And mm. that was never the case. And I'm not going to dig into that. But the technology behind NFTs, still very, very effective. Still something we're going to see the impact of down the road. But Thinking about blockchain technology and AI technology, it's two totally different worlds and they're not related. And it's frustrating to see people writing off AI and not giving the right consideration to AI because they're thinking it's just another tech fad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I saw that letter come out about, hey, put a pause on it. I was very happy to see that because I've had lots of concerns about like the ethics of what it is that we're doing because just because we can, does that mean we really should? I mean, right. Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. <laughs> I Jurassic mean, Jeff Goldblum nailed, nailed it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's going to be the Holocaust. It could be a whole lot of things that you can, uh, sure. you know, let your mind go. I didn't want to go as deep as the Holocaust. I was trying to keep it surface level with my Jurassic Park reference, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but no, you're, you're spot on a hundred percent. It could definitely 
be just as as devastating as something like that uh, genocide on a level that we're we're not even considering and, and it could potentially be beyond our control yeah so 2001 you know the space odyssey i mean yeah. so many things so many things yeah. Um, I'm very, very glad to see that. I, I know that there's always still going to be things that are going on in the closet or in the dark, so to speak, uh, dark web, whatever, where people are still moving things forward, but you know, that's, you're, you're breaking the code, right? The code sure. that we're all saying that we're agreeing to that we're, we're going to be honorable. Well, and that's what we got to consider too. Just because you know we have access to GPT four as of late, which is even more impressive than the three point five that came out in November. Uh, but if this is what the public has access to, what's the military have access to? Yeah. What are they doing in, in some of these other research centers? You know, what are they actually doing back there? What does OpenAI have? You know, in the in their deep dark vault? You know, yes. what what are they already leveraging? What are they already using? What have they already discovered? Uh, and and do they even know to ask the questions to prevent something like this at this stage? And that's the scary stuff. Yeah, sure enough is. Well, over here, best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners and you have a mentee. So let's give a little shout out to her. Yeah, Madison Frankie is, is I have the honor and pleasure of being uh, her mentor. Uh, she's an amazing young lady. She's got a uh, 5013C that she's she founded uh, that is the World Literacy Foundation, or it, it's an association with the World Literacy Foundation. And she travels the world, literally. She just spoke at Oxford just last week, uh, which was amazing and insane, uh, where she she's representing the World Literacy Foundation, and she has a goal to, to, uh, to, to curb illiteracy. She wants to provide books and resources so that she can teach the world to read. Uh, I think it's an amazing... Uh, undertaking. It's a very daunting task that she's undertaking, but if there's anybody that can do it, Maddie is the one to to lead that charge. Uh, she's just amazing. So being able to provide her with any kind of insight or guidance uh, or, or direction based on some of the experiences that I've had, uh, and and I've, I've had some interesting ones, uh, hopefully I can keep her on her path or at least help keep her on her path and, and move forward there. Uh, the best advice is just give, you know, be an open book, uh, share, Share the stories. Don't just share the stories. Share the lessons behind the stories. Uh, that's probably the big thing. You know, so many times we we find ourselves in positions of of authority or leadership or guidance, and we we don't share openly enough, and we don't uh, allow others to learn from our experience. And I think it's absolutely critical that we when we find ourselves in these positions that we leverage our experiences and we share those experiences and we share the lessons learned from living those experiences because. It's it's interesting and it's funny to, to look at these kids and I say kids, you know, Maddie, she's 25 and she's an amazing young lady. It just blows my mind at what she accomplishes. Uh, but it's interesting to look at this the, the, these kids that are in that age bracket and to see just how much they don't know. You know, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful in any way no. uh, to, to anybody, but it, there's just certain things you just don't know unless you live them. And if you have lived them, then it's your obligation to share them. So that's my biggest. I love that. That is, that is so important. Also, um, being open book. I love it. It is perfect. How can our listeners contact you? How do they find you? Sure. They can find me, uh, uh all the social media platforms out there, Instagram, uh, Facebook, I mean, literally anywhere you can find me on any social media platform, pretty easy to find It's the guy with the red hat. Uh, or they can go to redhatmedia.io. Or if you want to, I'll even throw this out there right now. If you'd like to schedule some time with me, free 30-minute discovery session to find out what you're doing or maybe what you want to do with your content creation. Uh, maybe you have a podcast that's not quite doing what you want it to do. You're not quite reaching those goals. More than happy to jump on the phone with you and figure out exactly what you can do to help you move forward. You can go to meetlarryroberts.com and just jump on my calendar. I'd love to talk to you. Okay, I'm putting that in here. So meetlarryroberts.com. We've got that. Perfect. And then um, I know we didn't name this one off and I looked on your website, but do you have a TikTok channel also? I do. Uh, I don't know what the channel name is. I'm not on there as much as I thought I was going to be. Um, I am on TikTok okay. though. Yeah, that's okay. If somebody wants to look for you, they can find you. But oh, you the Larry Roberts. Very simple. I am the Larry Roberts on TikTok. 
Okay. Um, okay. Well, Larry, I want to tell you, this has been the absolute best. I want to, truly, it's been really, really good. I am so um, lucky. I feel like lucky and privileged to have had this time with you. It's the longest conversation I've been able to have because, <laughs> you know, when we go to PodFest, it's like, hey, and, you know, we just can only wave because there's like lines. PodFest is chaos for me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you yeah. wait in lines, people are looking to speak with a person and it's just, it's always it's always something there, but you are yes. so entertaining and I am looking forward to watching you on your comedy, uh, I'll call it on the road channel. Yeah. I, I, I'm not looking forward to you watching it, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch it first, so that. but anyway, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Great conversation. Thank you for rescheduling. I know we had to reschedule a couple of times. I really oh. appreciate you sticking with it and us being able to follow through. Yeah, so. This is so much better. The quality is so much better in the studio. Oh, yeah. Always. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Well, thanks. All right. Thank you. We want to thank our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you to our production team, producer and editor, Josue Gonzalez, and music by Sophie Lloyd. Be sure to visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future of work. So as a reminder, remember to subscribe to Employers for Change. Our podcast uh, channel is over on our YouTube channel. You can find us there if you just go to our website, e4c.tech. You can also Google the Intern Whisper podcast and you can find it with uh, our shows on YouTube. Next, you can always subscribe to us on your favorite streaming channel. So be sure to do that and share a comment, share a show, tell us what you like, give us a rating. We're looking for all of those great things.